Chapter One, Part Three of The Stones of Venice, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Stones of Venice, Volume One, by John Ruskin. Chapter One, The Quarry, Part Three. Paragraph 34. Now observe. The transitional, or especially Arabic, style of the Venetian work is centralized by the date 1180, and is transformed gradually into the Gothic, which extends in its purity from the middle of the 13th to the beginning of the 15th century, that is to say, over the precise period which I have described as the central epoch of the life of Venice. I dated her decline from the year 1418. Foscari became Doge five years later, and in his reign the first marked signs appear in architecture of that mighty change which Philippe de Comillans notices as above, the change to which London owes St. Paul's, Rome St. Peter's, Venice and Vicesa's, the edifices commonly supposed to be their noblest, and Europe in general the degradation of every art she has since practiced. Paragraph 35. This change appears first in a loss of truth and vitality in existing architecture all over the world. Compare Seven Lamps, Chapter 2. All the Gothics in existence, southern or northern, were corrupted at once. The German and French lost themselves in every species of extravagance. The English Gothic was confined, in its insanity, by a straight waistcoat of perpendicular lines. The Italian effloresced on the mainland into the meaningless ornamentation of the Centosa of Pavia and the Cathedral of Como, a style sometimes ignorantly called Italian Gothic, and at Venice into the insipid confusion of the Porta Delicata and the wild crockets of St. Mark's. This corruption of all architecture, especially ecclesiastical, corresponded with and marked the state of religion all over Europe, the peculiar degradation of the Romanist superstition and of public morality in consequence, which brought about the Reformation. Paragraph 36. Against the corrupted papacy arose two great divisions of adversaries, Protestants in Germany and England, rationalists in France and Italy, the one requiring the purification of religion, the other its destruction. The Protestant, kept the religion, but cast aside the heresies of Rome, and with them her arts, by which last rejection he injured his own character, cramped his intellect in refusing to it one of its noblest exercises, and materially diminished its influence. It may be a serious question how far the pausing of the Reformation has been a consequence of this error. The rationalist kept the arts and cast aside the religion. This rationalistic art is the art commonly called Renaissance, marked by a return to pagan systems, not to adopt them and hallow them for Christianity, but to rank itself under them as an imitator and pupil. In painting, it is headed by Giulio Romano and Niccolo Poisson. In architecture, by Sansovino and Palladio. Paragraph 37. Instant degradation followed in every direction. A flood of folly and hypocrisy. Mythologies ill understood at first, then perverted into feeble sensualities, take the place of the representations of Christian subjects, which had become blasphemous under the treatment of men like Karachi. Gods without power, satyrs without rusticity, nymphs without innocence, men without humanity, gather into idiot groups upon the polluted canvas, and scenic affectations encumber the streets with preposterous marble. Lower and lower declines the level of abused intellect. The base school of landscape gradually usurps the place of the historical painting which had sunk into purient pedantry. The Alsatian sublimities of Salvador, the convectionary idealities of Claude, the dull manufacture of Gaspar and Coletto, south of the Alps, and on the north, the patient devotion of besotted lives of delineation of bricks and fogs, fat cattle and ditch water, and thus Christianity and morality, courage and intellect and art, all crumbling together into one wreck, we are hurried on to the fall of Italy, the revolution in France, 
and the condition of art in England, saved by her protestation from severer penalty in the time of George the Second. Paragraph 38. I have not written in vain if I have heretofore done anything towards diminishing the reputation of the Renaissance landscape painting. But the harm which has been done by Claude and the Poissons is as nothing when compared to the mischief effected by Palladio, Scomozzi, and Salvasino. Claude and the Poissons were weak men, and have had no serious influence on the general mind. There is little harm in their works being purchased at high prices, their real influence is very slight, and they may be left without grave indignation as to their poor mission of furnishing drawing-rooms and assisting stranded conversations. Not so the Renaissance architecture, raised at once into all the magnificence of which it was capable by Michelangelo, and then taken up by men of real intellect and imagination, such as Gamalzio, Solvicino, Igneo Jones, and Wren, it is impossible to estimate the extent of its influence on the European mind, and that the more, because few persons are concerned with painting, and of those few, the larger number regard it with slight attention, but all men are concerned with architecture, and have at some time of their lives serious business with it, it does not much matter that an individual loses two or three hundred pounds in buying a bad picture, but it is to be regretted that a nation should lose two or three hundred thousand in raising a ridiculous building. Nor is it merely wasted wealth or distempered conception which we have to regret in this Renaissance architecture, but we shall find in it partly the root, partly the expression, of certain dominant evils of modern times, over-sophistication and ignorant classicism, the one destroying the healthfulness of general society, the other rendering our schools and universities useless to a large number of the men who passed through them. Now Venice, as she was once the most religious, was in her fall the most corrupt of European states, and as she was in her strength the center of the pure currents of Christian architecture, so she is in her decline the source of the Renaissance. It was the originality and splendor of the palaces of Vincenza and Venice which gave this school its eminence in the eyes of Europe, and the dying city, magnificent in her dissipation and graceful in her follies, obtained wider worship in her decrepitude than in her youth, and sank from the midst of her admirers into the grave. Paragraph 39. It is in Venice, therefore, and in Venice only, that effectual blows can be struck at this pestilent art of the Renaissance. Destroy its claims to admiration there, and it can assert them nowhere else. This, therefore, will be the final purpose of the following essay. I shall not devote a fourth section to Palladio, nor weary the reader with successive chapters of vituperation, but I shall, in my account of the earlier architecture, compare the forms of all its leading features with those into which they were corrupted by the classicists, and pause, in the close, on the edge of the precipice of decline, so soon as I have made its depth discernible. In doing this I shall depend upon two distinct kinds of evidence. The first, the testimony borne by particular incidents and facts to a want of thought or of feeling in the builders, from which we may conclude that their architecture must be bad, and second, the sense, which I doubt not I shall be able to excite in the reader, of a systematic ugliness in the architecture itself. Of the first kind of testimony, I shall give here two instances, which may be immediately useful in fixing in the reader's mind the epoch above indicated for the commencement of decline. I must again refer to the importance which I have above attached to the death of Carlo Zeno and the Doge Tommaso Mocenigo. The tomb of that Doge is, as I said, wrought by a Florentine, but it is of the same general type and feeling as all the Venetian tombs of the period, and it is one of the last which retains it. The classical element enters largely into its details, but the feeling of the whole is as yet unaffected. Like all the lovely tombs of Venice and Verona, it is a sarcophagus with a recumbent figure above, and this figure is a faithful but tender portrait, wrought as far as can be without painfulness, of the doge as he lay in death. He wears his ducal robe and bonnet, 
His head is laid slightly aside upon his pillow. His hands are simply crossed as they fall. The face is emaciated, the features large, but so pure and lordly in their natural chiseling that they must have looked like marble even in their animation. They are deeply worn away by thought and death, the veins on the temples branching and starting, the skin gathered in sharp folds, the brow high arched and shaggy, the eyeball magnificently large, the curve of the lips just veiled by the light mustaches at the side, the beard short, double, and sharp pointed, all noble and quiet, the white sepulchral dust marking like light the stern angles of the cheek and brow. This tomb was sculpted in 1424, and is thus described by one of the most intelligent of the recent writers who represent the popular feeling respecting Venetian art. Of the Italian school is also the rich but ugly, Rico Manombel, sarcophagus, in which repose the ashes of Tomasino Massonigo. It may be called one of the last links which connect the declining art of the Middle Ages with that of the Renaissance, which was in its rise. We shall not stay to particularize the defects of each of the seven figures of the front and sides, which represent the cardinal and theological virtues. Nor will we make any remarks upon those which stand in the niches above the pavilion, because we consider them unworthy both of the age and reputation of the Florentine school, which was then with reason considered the most notable in Italy. It is well indeed not to pause over these defects, but it might have been better to have paused a moment beside that noble image of a king's mortality. Section 41. In the choir of the same church, St. Giovanni in Poalo, is another tomb, that of the doge Andrea Vedurmen. This doge died in 1478, after a short reign of two years, the most disastrous in the annals of Venice. He died of a pestilence which followed the ravage of the Turks, carried to the shores of the lagoons. He died, leaving Venice disgraced by sea and land, with the smoke of hostile devastation rising in the blue distances of Ruili, and there was raised to him the most costly tomb ever bestowed on her monarchs. Paragraph 42. If the writer above quoted was cold beside the statue of one of the fathers of his country, he atones for it by his eloquence beside the tomb of the veteran. I must not spoil the force of Italian superlative by translation. Quando si guarda a quella corretta eleganza di profili e di proporzioni, a quella squisitezza d'ornamenti, a quel certo sapore antico che senza ombra d'imitazione traspare da tutta l'opera, Sopra ornatissimo zoccolo, fornito di squisiti intagli, salza uno stilobate. Sotto le colonne, il predetto stilobate si muta leggiadramente in piedistalo, poi con bella novità di pensiero e di effetto va coronato da un fregio il più gentile che vedersi posa. Non può si lasciar senza un cenno l'arca dove sta chiuso il doge. Capo lavoro di pensiero e di esecuzione. There are two pages and a half of closely printed praise, of which the above specimens may suffice, but there is not a word of the statue of the dead from the beginning to end. I am myself in the habit of considering this rather an important part of a tomb, and I was especially interested in it here, because Sovaccio only echoes the praise of the thousands. It is unanimously declared the chief rova of Renaissance sepulchral work, and pronounced by Chirago, also quoted by Sferon, Il vertice a cui l'arti veneziane si spinsero col ministero del scapello. The very culminating point to which the Venetian arts attained by ministry of the chisel. To this culminating point, therefore, covered with dust and cobwebs, I attained, as I did to every tomb of importance in Venice, by the ministry of such ancient ladders as were to be found in the sacristan's keeping. I was struck at first 
by the excessive awkwardness and want of feeling in the fall of the hand towards the spectator, for it is thrown off the middle of the body in order to show its fine cutting. Now the Mossonigo hand, severe and even stiff in its articulations, has its veins finely drawn, its sculptor having justly felt that the delicacy of the veining expresses alike dignity and age and birth. The Bedroman hand is far more laboriously cut, but its blunt and clumsy contour at once makes us feel that all the care has been thrown away, and well it may be, for it has been entirely bestowed in cutting gouty wrinkles about the joints. Such as the hand is, I looked for its fellow. At first I thought it had been broken off, but on clearing away the dust I saw the wretched effigy had only one hand, and was a mere block on the inner side. The face, heavy and disagreeable in its features, is made monstrous by its semi-sculpture. One side of the forehead is wrinkled elaborately, the other left smooth. One side only of the doge's cap is chased, one cheek only is finished, and the other blocked and distorted, besides. Finally, the ermine robe, which is elaborately imitated to the utmost lock of hair and of ground hair on the one side, is blocked out only on the other, it having been supposed throughout the work that the effigy was only to be seen from below and from one side. Paragraph 43. It was indeed to be so seen by nearly everyone, and I do not blame, I should on the contrary have praised, the sculptor for regulating his treatment of it by its position, if that treatment had not involved, first, dishonesty, in giving only half a face, a monstrous mask, when we demanded true portraiture of the dead, and secondly, such utter coldness of feeling as could only consist of an extreme of intellectual and moral degradation, who, with a heart in his breast, could have stayed his hand as he drew the dim lines of the old man's countenance, a majestic once, indeed, but at least sanctified by the solemnities of death, could have stayed his hand as he reached the bend of the gray forehead and measured out the last veins of it at so much the zechin. I do not think the reader, if he has feeling, will expect that much talent should be shown in the rest of his work by the sculptor of this base and senseless lie. The whole monument is one wearisome aggregation of that species of ornamental flourish which, when it is done with a pen, is called penmanship, and when done with a chisel, should be called chiselmanship, the subject of it chiefly being flat-limbed boys sprawling on dolphins, dolphins capable of swimming, and dragged upon the sea by expanded pocket-handkerchiefs. But now, reader, comes the very gist and point of the whole matter. This lying monument to a dishonored doge, this culminating pride of the Renaissance art of Venice, is at least veracious, if nothing else, in its testimony to the character of its sculpture. He was banished from Venice for forgery in 1487. Paragraph 44. I have more to say about this convict's work hereafter, but I pass at present to the second, slighter, but yet more interesting piece of evidence, which I promised. The ducal palace has two principal facades, one towards the sea, the other towards the piazza. The seaward side, and as far as the seventh main arch inclusive, the piazza side, is work of the early part of the 14th century, some of it perhaps even earlier, while the rest of the piazza side is of the 15th. The difference in age has been gravely disputed by the Venetian antiquaries, who have examined many documents on the subject, and quoted some which they never examined. I have myself collated most of the written documents, and one document more to which the Venetian antiquaries never thought of referring, the masonry of the palace itself. Paragraph 45. That masonry changes at the center of the eighth arch from the sea angle on the piazza side. It has been of comparatively small stones up to that point. The 15th century work instantly begins with larger stones, brought from Istria a hundred miles away. Footnote. The older work is of Istrian stone also, but of different quality. End footnote. The ninth shaft from the sea in the lower arcade, and the 17th, which is above it, in the upper arcade, commence the series of 15th century shafts, 
These two are somewhat thicker than the others, and carry the party wall of the Sala de Scrutiano. Now observe, reader. The face of the palace, from this point to the Porta del Carta, was built at the insistence of that noble doge Massenigo, beside whose tomb you have been standing. At his insistence, and in the beginning of the reign of his successor, Foscari, that is to say, circa 1424, this is not disputed. It is only disputed that the sea facade is earlier, of which, however, the proofs are as simple as they are incontrovertible, for not only the masonry, but the sculpture, changes at the ninth lower shaft, and that in the capitals of the shafts both of the upper and lower arcade, the costumes of the figures introduced in the sea facade being purely geotesque, correspondent with Giotti's work in the Arena Chapel at Padua, while the costume on the other capitals is Renaissance classic, and the lion's heads between the arches change at the same point, and there are a multitude of other evidences in the statues of the angels, with which I will not at present trouble the reader. Paragraph 46. Now the architect who built under Foscari in 1424, remember my date for the decline of Venice, 1418, was obliged to follow the principal forms of the older palace, but he had not the wit to invent new capitals in the same style. He therefore clumsily copied the old ones. The palace has seventeen main arches on the sea facade, eighteen on the piazza side, which in all are of course carried by thirty-six pillars, and these pillars I shall always number from right to left, from the angle of the palace at the Ponte del Paglia to that next the Porta del Carta. I number them in this succession, because I thus have the earliest shafts first numbered. So counted, the first, the eighteenth, and the thirty-sixth are the great supports of the angles of the palace, and the first of the fifteenth-century series being, as above stated, the ninth from the sea on the piazza side, is the twenty-sixth of the entire series, and will always in future be so numbered, so that all numbers above twenty-six indicate fifteenth-century work, and all below it fourteenth-century, with some exceptional cases of restoration. Then the copied capitals are the twenty-eighth, copied from the seventh, the twenty-ninth from the ninth, the thirtieth from the tenth, the thirty-first from the eighth, the thirty-third from the twelfth, and the thirty-fourth from the eleventh, the others being dull inventions of the fifteenth century, except the thirty-sixth, which is very nobly designed. Paragraph 47. The capitals thus selected from the earlier portion of the palace for imitation, together with the rest, will be accurately described hereafter. The point I have here to notice is that in the copy of the ninth capital, which was decorated, being like the rest, octagonal, with figures of the eight virtues, faith, hope, charity, justice, temperance, prudence, humility, the Venetian antiquaries call it humanity, and fortitude. The virtues of the 14th century are somewhat hard-featured, with vivid and living expression, and plain everyday clothes of the time. Charity has her lap full of apples, perhaps loaves, and is giving one to a little child, who stretches his arm for it across a gap in the leafage of the capital. Fortitude tears open a lion's jaws. Faith lays her hand on her breast as she beholds the cross, and hope is praying, while above her a hand is seen emerging from sunbeams, the hand of God, according to that of Revelations, the Lord God giveth them light. And the inscription above is, Space Optima in Deo. Paragraph 48 this design, then, is rudely and with imperfect chiseling imitated by the fifteenth-century workmen. The virtues have lost their hard features and living expressions. They have now all got Roman noses, and have had their hair curled. Their actions and emblems are, however, preserved, until we come to hope. She is still praying, but she is praying to the sun only. The hand of God is gone. Is not this a curious and striking type of the spirit which had then become dominant in the world, forgetting to see God's hand in the light he gave? 
so that in the issue, when that light opened into the Reformation on the one side, and into full knowledge of ancient literature on the other, the one was arrested, and the other perverted? Paragraph 49. Such is the nature of the accidental evidence on which I shall depend for the proof of the inferiority of character in the Renaissance workmen. But the proof of the inferiority of the work itself is not so easy, for in this I have to appeal to judgments which the Renaissance work has itself distorted. I felt this difficulty very forcibly as I read a slight review of my former work, The Seven Lamps, in The Architect. The writer noticed my constant praise of St. Mark's. Mr. Ruskins thinks it is a very beautiful building. We, said the architect, think it is a very ugly building. I was not surprised at the difference of opinion, but at the thing being considered so completely a subject of opinion. My opponents in matters of painting always assume that there is such a thing as a law of right, and that I do not understand it. But my architectural adversaries appeal to no law. They simply set their opinion against mine, and indeed there is no law at present to which either they or I can appeal. No man can speak with rational decision of the merits or demerits of buildings. He may with obstinacy, he may with resolved adherence to previous prejudices, but never as if the matter could be otherwise decided than by a majority of votes, or pertinacity of partisanship. I had, however, a clear conviction that there was a law in this matter, that good architecture might be indisputably discerned and divided from the bad, that the opposition in their very nature and essence was clearly visible, and they were all of us just as unwise in disputing about the matter without reference to principle, as we should be for debating about the genuineness of a coin without ringing it. I felt also assured that this law must be universal if it were to be conclusive, that it must enable us to reject all foolish and base work, and to accept all noble and wise work, without reference to style or national feeling, that it must sanction the design of all truly great nations and times, Gothic or Greek or Arab, that it must cast off and reprobate the design of all foolish nations and times, Chinese or Mexican, or modern European, and that it must be easily applicable to all possible architectural inventions of human mind. I set myself, therefore, to establish such a law, in full belief that men were intended, without excessive difficulty, and by use of their general common sense, to know good things from bad, and that it is only because they will not be at the pains required for the discernment that the world is so widely encumbered with forgeries and baseness. I found the work simpler than I had hoped. The reasonable things ranged themselves in the order I required, and the foolish things fell aside, and took themselves away so soon as they were looked in the face. I had then, with respect to Venetian architecture, the choice, either to establish each division of law in a separate form, as I came to the features with which it was concerned, or else to ask the reader's patience while I followed out the general inquiry first, and determined with him a code of right and wrong, to which we might together make retrospective appeal. I thought this the best, though perhaps the dullest way, and in these first following pages I have therefore endeavored to arrange these foundations of criticism, on which I shall rest in my account of Venetian architecture, in a form clear and simple enough to be intelligible even to those who never thought of architecture before. To those who have, much of what is stated in them will be well known or self-evident, but they must not be indignant at a simplicity on which the whole argument depends for its usefulness. From that which appears a mere truism when first stated, they will find very singular consequences sometimes following, consequences altogether unexpected and of considerable importance. I will not pause here to dwell on their importance, nor on that of the thing itself to be done, for I believe most readers will at once admit the value of a criterion of right and wrong in so practical and costly an art as architecture, and will be apt rather to doubt the possibility of its attainment than dispute its usefulness if attained. I invite them, therefore, to a fair trial, 
being certain that even if I should fail my main purpose, and be unable to induce in my reader the confidence of judgment I desire, I shall at least receive his thanks for the suggestion of consistent reasons, which may determine hesitating choice, or justify involuntary preference. And if I should succeed, as I hope, in making the stones of Venice touchstones, and detecting, by the mouldering of her marble, poison more subtle than ever was betrayed by the rending of her crystal, and if thus I am enabled to show the baseness of the schools of architecture and nearly every other art which have for three centuries been predominant in Europe, I believe the result of the inquiry may be serviceable for a proof of a more vital truth than any at which I have hitherto hinted. For observe, I said the Protestant had despised the arts, and the rationalist corrupted them. But what has the Romanist done meanwhile? He boasts that it was a papacy which raised the arts. Why could it not support them when it was left to its own strength? How came it to yield to classicism which was based on infidelity, and to oppose no barrier to innovations which have reduced the once faithfully conceived imagery of its worship to stage decoration? Shall we not rather find that Romanism, instead of being a promoter of the arts, has never shown itself capable of a single great conception since the separation of Protestantism from its side? So long as, corrupt though it may be, no clear witness has been borne against it, so that it still included in its ranks a vast number of faithful Christians, so long its arts were noble. But the witness was born, the error made apparent, and Rome, refusing to hear the testimony or forsake the falsehood, has been struck from that instance with an intellectual palsy, which has not only incapacitated her from any further use of the arts which once were her ministers, but has made her worship the shame of its own shrines, and of her worshippers their destroyers. Come, then, if truths such as these are worth our thoughts, come and let us know, before we enter into the streets of the sea city, whether we are indeed to submit ourselves to their undistinguished enchantment, and to look upon the last changes which were wrought on the lifted forms of her palaces, as we should on the capricious towering of summer clouds in the sunset, ere they sank into the deep of night, or whether, rather, we should not behold in the brightness of their accumulated marble pages on which the sentence of her luxury was to be written until the wave should efface it, as they fulfilled, God has numbered thy kingdom, and finished it. End of chapter 1, The Quarry Recording by Todd